You are listening to a unique and special production of the 110-250 Audio Studio. What's this? A day bird? A yard bird? Who's the bird? Where is he? All I really wanted to say was that I'm okay. Now I'm lost alone here with the sky. Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino series in conjunction with the 110-250 Audio Studio with bandmate Phil Schlatterer of the Kansas City Power Pop Band, The Daybirds. As a part of a larger mission to capture the essence, history, and bravado of the late 90s, early 2000s band, we catch up with Phil from his home in Liberty to recount the tales, stories, and journey of band life. Prior to The Daybirds and in detail as a part of this towering act full of music magic, brilliant assessments and stories ensue. Dig it the most. Hey, Philly, what's up, man? Hey, Joey. How you doing? <laughs> hey, I'm ready. Are you ready? Welcome to Earth, pal. <laughs> hey, I've got my little cup of water. Uh, I love I'm it. really super nervous, so this should be great. Yeah, I think we got I think we got all the ingredients for a great interview, my man. I think we're good. <laughs> can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you lovely. Yes. I just, Everything's I put good. You on the Put you on the speaker. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah, everything's okay. good. Yeah, nothing, nothing to worry about. Nothing to get nervous about. We're just going to ease into it, and we're going to have a good time. We're going to relive some some good times. All right. Okay. So, Phil, as we begin here, we're going to get into your life and start at the beginning. As a kid, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I really didn't think about it a whole lot, to be honest. Uh, I know I did like playing music. My mom started me out on piano lessons and stuff. I didn't want to do what they, you know, I didn't want to do what the teacher was teaching me. I'd try. I'd just listen and figure it out by ear and then repeat it back to them. I played a lot on my own. I remember in third grade, I had written some music stuff, and I, we actually had a talent contest in, in grade school. And I remember that's probably one of the first times I ever got in front of people and played music. But I got up there and I had a little piano thing I wrote. I'm sure it was horrifyingly terrible. But I got up there as a little kid and just got in front of people and played it. And I just, it was really fun. I, I was hooked. So that's, it kind of started with that. I mean, I, I think the music thing really grew on me and kind of snuck up behind me. I mean, I never really was like, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a scientist or I want to be, you know, I never really thought about it like that. But the further I went on, the further I was like, well, this is fun. I like doing this. And, you know, it didn't work out as far as something that I did for a living, but it sure did work out for something that I was like, I enjoyed and I sure, you know, got to glean the most out of it, you know, that I could in my life. Tell me where you're from originally. Kansas City is the metro area here. I'm from Liberty and grew up in Liberty. Still here, actually. Uh, my mom worked for TWA, so we traveled quite a bit. And so, you know, I got to get out of the country a little bit and see some things. Uh, but most of the time, I've just been right here in Liberty, which I really don't mind. It's a nice little town. You you kind of talked a little bit about the music early on in your life, but tell me how you really got baptized into it. Like, how did it become a thing that not only that you wanted to do, but something that you liked, what you listened to, and how you, like, really started getting in to music? Well, okay. You know, playing piano and stuff, that's one thing. But as I got, you know, older, like seven or eight, I'd start, you know, my parents would give me allowance here and there, and I started getting into music. And I was really became kind of a fan, first of all, 
I remember one of the first albums I ever bought is I bought uh, Bee Gees 8-tracks with my own money. My parents had 8-tracks, a bunch of different stuff, and they listened to not like just gospel, which, you know, growing up in church and stuff, there was a lot of gospel, but there was also like, you know, my parents like Stereo 100, KMBR, you know, stuff like uh, Carly Simon, Lightfoot, what's his, I can't remember his name, Gordon Lightfoot, B.J. Yeah. Thomas, uh, of course, uh, James Taylor, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, my dad had a lot of country from when he was younger. I remember even two years old, listening to my babysitter had played all kinds of, like, old country. And that stuff that, I mean, I can remember singing along to certain songs, but that hooked me first was just listening. And I would sit in my parents' room and listen to stuff over and over and over for hours on end. Switching up the eight tracks and switching the eight tracks within themselves. And that was something that hooked on me. And then uh, when I was in sixth grade, you know, that's when they started talking about band. And so I started getting involved with that. And I was like, what can I do? And I was like, what about percussion? And so I started doing percussion in band. And so I got the snare. And so I'm dragging that back and forth to school and all that. But that summer and stuff, I started, you know, I had little jobs here and there and made money. I was like, I want a drum kit. And so I started saving up, and I bought my own drum kit. I started teaching myself how to play. I would just put, put music on and try to play what they played, you know, like turn up really loud so I could hear myself, and then <laughs> try to copy, you know, just copy what they're doing, you know. And that's something that, you know, I bought one kit, and I would come home, you know, third, fourth grade, fifth grade, and practice for, you know, hour, hour and a half after school every day. I got to where I wanted to buy a second kit because metal was big. You know, heavy metal was coming out pretty big right then. And everybody had uh, two double, you know, a double bass, two bass drums. And so I was like, dude, I got to have two bass drums. So I saved up and I bought another drum kit. And so what I did is I took two five-piece kits and put them together. And so, you know, most of the time, your toms on a drum set or whatever, they'll be different sizes, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way down. Well, I had two 12s, two 14s, two 16s, and I just, you know, I'd tune them to different things so they would sound like different sizes. But I actually had, you know, doubles of everything just laid out as like a double piece, you know, like, like, a, like a double kick, drum kit. And so... You know, and I'd put my headphones on and put in some whatever and try to play along, and that kind of got me going. That's sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And then, you know, we started coming up with all these bands, you know, and you just, most of it was just talk. It was just BS, Joe. We were just making it up in our heads, drawing little pictures about how we were in a band, Crystal Rose and Armor and all these, you know, kind of goofy kid stuff. But then we started working towards it. We, you know, we had, you know, I remember having to air seven or eight songs with this little band and five and six. And we did all originals. We'd do maybe one or two covers, but they would stink, you know. And, you know, the songs themselves pretty, you know, were pretty basic and semi-terrible. But, you know, we got to start somewhere. And so that's what we did. We came up, you know, that's something that it really lays into an identity for yourself, too. It's like, man, I'm a drummer. I'm in a band. Writing songs, it just gives you something to like land on and grow up on. You know what I mean? That's kind of where I was with all that. You know, eventually 
pushed into, you know, where I really was in little bands, and we really were out trying to do stuff. You know, I remember kicking one guy out of a band because he couldn't sing, and then they kicked me out, and then I started with this other thing, and we played some covers at school, and, you know, on Liberty Friday night, and that got us all going again, and, you know, just all the little funny little dramas and stuff. Some of that's from bands, you know, people that I've known for years, and they've been other bands and toured around, and we end up playing shows together, and opening for each other and stuff like that. Uh, but that was all, like, between 83, 84, and 88, 89, 90, right around in there. And I was in the, you know, punk, trash, metal. A lot of it was metal because that's what was going on then. And that's what we liked. We wanted to rock. I remember sixth grade, I got Pyromania by Def Leppard and Metal Hell yeah. by Quiet Riot. And those two albums were, boy, they were way out of what I was supposed to be listening to because I was a little church kid, and that was, like, about the opposite on the side of God as you could get. But I still, I, let, I, let, I listened to them. And then, you know, plus my parents found Christian rock music stuff that I really liked, like Petra, uh, Michael W. Smith, Res Band, uh, just all kinds of early stuff that I thought was cool, Sweet Comfort Band, um even like Amy Grant, I mean, you know, so you know, just all kinds of different like Christian music. They found stuff that was more rocking for me, so I could listen. But I really had both sides. I mean, it's kind of like I had this little angel side where I had music, and I also had all the stuff that I listened to on, you know, like were exactly where I should be. But I found, you know, you know what I'm saying. It all blended together, you know, and it was something that from the fandom you create, you know, and that's where we, you know, and it's. The more you wrote, the better you get, and that's what we did. We just loved music. We'd sit around and listen to music for hours on end, and we started trying to play it, and that's kind of just how it started going, you know? Well, you know, one of the big things in the early formation of, of getting into music, especially as a musician, is what you see live. What was your first live show that just totally blew you away? Oh, my gosh. I have to think about that. I know it was Christian. Because that's what I'd go see as Christian concerts. Striper was a gigantic one. Uh, they also had a, there's a band called Blood Good. That was really good. Altar Boys. There's a band called Altar Boys, which is like just real raw California punk, which was cool. Uh, that's Mike Stand. The guy's name is Mike Stand. It's like if you were ever supposed to be a rock star, your name would be Mike Stand. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Super talented guy. Just really hooky stuff. A band called Undercover, which was another, like, punk, straight-on, like, loud punk rock, but it was, you know, Christian lyrics and stuff, you know? Um, I'm trying to think of other shows. Throughout my life, like, I know King's X was a giant show for me. That was killer. Like, I have a million flashes of all these little bits in my head of all the different shows. I'm trying to land on one. Of course, uh, Suicidal Tendencies and Queen's Riot. Yeah. That show at the municipal, I think, or whatever, that was just nothing much like that. It was just amazing. You know, this is skipping around. That's later. I'm trying to think early stuff. Brian Duncan, who was, was like a singer who came to our church, and he was just, he. there are a few people that could sing like that guy. It's an amazing voice. That, and that paints the picture. I mean, just what you said right there, just kind of, and, and, and that's a perfect precursor to what I'm, what I'm going to get into next is, Prior to the Daybirds, you would have had to have been the most veteran journeyed guy 
in that band, you tasted a level of fame that these guys didn't because you were in Dig Jesus. Talk about your life before getting into the Daybirds, what you were doing and kind of that attention okay. to being really big in Dig Jesus. Well, with, uh, with Dig Jesus, it was a deal where I was in a punk crash type band called D-O-N, Degradation of a Nation. Uh, very much into that, like, uh, DRI and suicidal tendencies, and, you know, just, like, groovy punk rock, very loud, distorted, uh, more yelling. I was not the singer. I was a drummer. And that was with Dave Anderson. And he's the one that ended up being the guitar player for Dig Jesus. And kind of, like, we all sort of transitioned with him into that. So that's 1988, 1989, 1990 is right in this point. And I was playing that stuff and running drums around. And we first time, that's the first time I actually got a chance to record in a little studio. Like we went to a studio and it's just in this guy's house. And uh, we put, you know, we made Degradation of a Nation, that album. We put that down. And uh, Dave wrote a lot of that stuff. And uh, Eric Brown was the singer. And I was just back there, you know, playing drums. And that summer, you know, it was my freshman year of college over 1990. And then the summer, that summer of 1990, I bought Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche. And I was just so blown away by that album that it stayed in my tape deck all summer. And so I drove around trying, trying, and I say that very, very seriously, trying to sing, uh, sing like him. And it just, he really pulled my voice out, you know, to where I could do some things. And that's where I really started with this whole thing with Dig Zeus. Before Dig Zeus, there was a couple little bands that started up. There was me and Bill Brown. Uh, uh, and then this other guy was singing. I was still playing drums. And then we finally ended up with the lineup for Dig Zeus. And we had about six or seven practices. And in that amount of time, we wrote six songs. And then we went to Brian Fitz's and recorded. And this guy in town, super cool, just super cool guy. You know, he's, he basically was just like Tom Petty. He looked like him. He talked like him. He was just like Tom Petty. But anyway, uh, we made that record. We recorded there with those six songs. You know, I mean, it was bam, bam, bam. Six practices, six songs into the recording studio. And with that tape, we sent it out to some friends that were out in California and our friend Tony Shore heard it and just was really dug it a lot. And he got us hooked up to where we were set up with this little record label called Brainstorm, which is Brainstorm Artists International. And that was, uh, remember I said Undercover was a punk band? Well, Joe Taylor, oh, Joe Taylor, was the guy producing. And then there was a band called Daniel Amos, and that's Terry Scott Taylor. And he's one of he's. If you look it up, he's one of the most important alternative Christian songwriter guys out there. And his band was D.A., Daniel Amos, D.A. And so Joe and Terry produced Dig Zeus's first record, Struggle Fish, out in California. And we did not have any kind of marketing um, budget. I mean, they, they paid for the whole recording. I remember the whole thing costing like $22,000, which is absolutely nothing nowadays. They, we sold, I don't know, about 12,000 or 13,000 albums. I don't know how much that is now, but that's back right when we first released it. Uh, went on to do um, 
Magenta Mantle Love Tree, the second album, which did better. We did about 17,000 copies of that. That was two summers later. And then uh, we went on to do a live album that we really weren't, didn't even really realize we were going to do it until about two weeks ahead of time. And I think it's a really good little record. It's not anything, you know, the first two records is what I really would stand on. And the live album is just sort of extra credit. Uh, we did not have a chance to set up as far as equipment. And there's a lot of things that we wish we could have mixed around with on it that we didn't get to do. But it is what it is. You know, that's what you do when you're making music. Sometimes it doesn't work out exactly the way you want it to. It's not perfect, but it's real and it's there. Uh, and so that was uh, Ascension 7, Rocket Ship to Heaven. That was the, the live album that Dig Jesus did. And then, like, 96 is when we broke up. But, so, you know, we've been out touring. Like, we were planning stuff our own selves. We played at least once a month and sometimes two or three times in the weekend when we would be out. Uh, we'd play all over the Midwest. We played on the East Coast. We had friends fly us out to, like, uh, we, we actually played at a birthday party at this kid's house uh, up in uh, Washington State, like, across the, the Sound. And it was just us and his family and his friends. And he flew us out there to play because he liked our band, you know. Uh, the Christian, like, alternative scene, and the fans are very, very uh, loyal. And so it's like, we well, make friends for life with these people, you know. And so it's like, with that going on, I used to meet with John and Dean. And we used to hang out and drink coffee and stuff. And I'd talk about Dig Jesus. And we'd joke around about it, say, hey, let's start a band, you know. And it was like... You know, there's something that we just, like, we talked about. This is four or five years before the Daybirds, you know. We were all friends. We all hung out. And then at one point, you know, Dean and John got a hold of their perspective instruments and their Beatles books that they got a hold of and started learning. And right about then is 96. And that's when Dig Zeus broke up. I was like, well, let's, why not? Why not we just start a band? And so John and Dean were in for it, and we were looking for a drummer, and we met Jaeger. And that's kind of just how it started rolling. But it was just so funny because we used to joke around about uh, Fab Force 5 or whatever. We had this, you know, made up all these crazy characters for these bands that were sitting around drinking coffee at 4 in the morning. But then we ended up doing it. You know, and John and Dean, it's like they did not have a whole lot of experience as far as playing instruments. But they had the right ear. It's like you can do anything if you piss, sit down, and just work through it. It's like they may not be able to do you know, Paganini arpeggios, but they sure as hell could nail all the parts that we needed for the songs we were writing. And that's what we were doing. We were flying by the seat of our ass and just writing whatever and coming up and making sure, well, if this is how it's going to be and what it's going to be, we're going to play it exactly right. And we just worked it until it sounded right and then locked it in stone and moved on to the next song. So, I mean, well, that's kind of how that whole thing kind of shot off is, you know, we, it's just so funny that John and Dean and I, we joke about that stuff, and then we're just like, let's do it anyway. Let's just do it. And <laughs> it just, you know, it took off. You know, they were playing with um, uh, Shy Ava, which, you know, was, they, they got their instruments, and they started off playing with the bands within, like, probably four or five months of when they bought their instruments. Dean got his from Aletha, which was a little ukulele that his girlfriend, now wife, bought him. And then Sweetwood bought a keyboard, and they bought their Beatles books and just started goofing around and playing songs. That's what, you know, I've always heard them talking about. And then them playing with Shy Ava, that stuff was really cool, too. They had some really good songs, and they really added a creative 
and uh, a cool thing that that band needed, I think. Uh, there was a, I don't know how many songs they, they got a chance to record and how many songs they recorded. Um, I know Jimmy Gabriel was uh, playing guitar and singing and talk about a force as far as musically. He was really great too. Uh, but they were there and I was coming out of the Daybirds and we're like, let's put this together and just see what it is. And so the Sky Kings started, which of course, you know, we were the Sky Kings first before we figured out we had to change our name because of copyright law and some country studio band out in Nashville that already had records of the Sky Kings all over it, so we had to change it. But uh, anyway, that's some of that. I don't know. What you did was you completely, absolutely filled the blanks that I was looking for to get to this point. You like went boom, boom, boom. So instead of me asking, you went right in. So my, my question is, you know, there in the beginning when you guys got together, when, you know, obviously you said you guys were flying off the feet, you know, there was talent, you were the veteran guy in the band, but when did you realize, after Jaeger got in and you had the nucleus, when did you realize you had the magic? I knew we had the magic the five years before we even started, because of who they were and what they understood and the things that we would talk about, music comes out of everything else, it all overlaps. You know, you can be a writer and a painter and a sculptor and a dancer and a singer and a musician. It all overlaps. And the fact that I knew these guys and I knew where they were coming from and how, what they thought about the world and all that stuff, it's like I knew they had it before we even started. It was almost just like, uh, you know, I didn't have any questions. I just wanted to see what the monster would become because I knew that they already – it's an ear, Joe. It's like when can you tell – that you can stop now because it's exactly right. And they had it, both of them. And Jaeger, too. It's like, and also to recognize the golden nuggets. When you're playing along and there's something missing and somebody just goes, you know, and does this thing, and the whole thing turns. And you're just like, this is it. This is the piece that is missing from this song, and it makes the song. You know, before... You didn't realize it was a skeleton until the flowers came. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. None of us are none of us are trained. I mean, I have had some a little bit of class, you know, a little bit of schooling, but not really enough to even make much of a damn difference on me. It's just having that thing to where you're fishing. You're just trying things out. You don't know what you're doing. You know, you don't know music theory backwards and forwards. You have kind of stupid general ideas, but really that comes from your ear as well. You know, even you, Joe, you have a billion songs that you know. And so you know, I think it's part of the why you like jazz so much. It's because you're a smart dude, and it's like it takes all those rules that are in your head for all the songs that you know, and it splits them in all these directions, and they're all very interesting outcomes. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like, totally. It is, and it's like, in a way, that genre is so much more rich than even just rock and roll and pop. But it's like, that's where we were going with it. We were fans, and we were doing what we loved. And it's like, it was also an easy way, too. It was, you know, we were not going to kill ourselves. We were, you know, part of this whole thing is it is fun. We are having fun. It's not going to be work. I'm not going to sit here and stew over some ninth extended 12th chord that I can't figure out and I can't play it again. You know, we, it was about fun for us. 
And so that's where, you know, that, that was part of it too. And there's, there's a confidence when you're dealing with guys that know what they're doing, like a think tank or a good baseball team or basketball team. Everybody knows their parts and they're good at them and you can count on each other. It adds to this almost arrogance. I don't want to say we were arrogant. Maybe we were, but we just knew what the hell we could do, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think the thing is, and I talked to Dennis at one point about this too, is that there is this indelible friendship. And I think there's, there's a legacy that goes into what you guys were. And I think a part of that was this very deep friendship because you guys would hang out no matter what. And it just so happened that you were creating music. You guys were all good friends. You're hanging out, doing your thing. But music just happened to be a part of that social tapestry that you guys created together. Yeah, and I'll throw this in here, too. I remember, you know, years into it, me and Dean, I'm riding back from somewhere in the dark, you know, he's driving or whatever. And literally him saying to me, or I said to him, I don't even remember who said it to who. It's like, look, years from now, when this thing, something happens and we break up, I'm talking to you. You're talking to me. We're going to be a part. And we're going to say shit to each other for a long time. Just, you know, because we're together all the time. And so it's funny. And neither one was mad at the one. It's just the idea of it's time for space at that point. We weren't even planning it. But it's so funny because it's exactly what happened. It's like when we broke up, we just got separated. And I, I could call him and he could call me. But we did it for a long time because it was just like, you know, it's like we dismantled. You know, we had to dismantle from each other and become ourselves again. We had all been so tied into each other. It's just funny. I just think that's super. I just, you know what I mean? But, Dude, it, it's such a that's such a poetically profound way of putting things, because I remember, and it's so weird. This summer, I went out with the family on a trip. We went from Colorado to San Diego, and we swung through Vegas and stayed with Sweetwood at the Sweetwood yeah. he calls. And I remember years ago when we sat around over coffee. I remember Sweetwood said at one point. All of us need to meet at a coffee shop in La Jolla as old men and just talk it out and just yeah. meet and have our gray, our balding, our stories, our lives. We become the Ben Folds lyric. And I remember when I was getting ready to leave that his house in Vegas, I told him that right before I left. I said, dude, this is about as close as I can get right now at 50. But it's that thing. You're totally right. It's like there, there was that part of you guys that knew probably before you knew that there were certain things that were going to transpire. But I think that's what, that's why I want to do this. That's why I want yeah. to talk to you guys. You guys had something that was beautiful because it was music, because it was friendship, and you crystallized the time in life that was probably the most therapeutic thing you could have ever done with your time at that point in your life. Well, and let me throw this out too. Some people, you know, they look at this idea of being a musician and the goal is to be rich and to be famous and all that. It's like, I think the way we did it was perfect. It was exactly right. We got to experience the whole excitement of playing for people and having them enjoy yeah. it and being able to run around afterwards and do all the stupid crap we did afterwards, staying up till four in the morning, drinking coffee or beer or whatever, meeting people in Chicago and meeting people in just every city we went to. And the thing is, is, 
we never had to deal with the bullshit, Joe. We never had yep. to deal with paparazzi crap. And most people say, people might say, oh, you're just copping out. You're just saying that because it never happened to you. you. You go ask any of those famous people that have those assholes following them around with cameras and see if they like it. Nobody likes mm-hmm. it. Mm-mm. You know what I mean? You can pretend like you like it. Uh, maybe there's some you know, really arrogant people out there who think that they deserve that and that should just happen to them. They might like it. But, no, I mean, people want to just be able to be normal, too. We really got both. I mean, you know, it's like we got praised, and then we could go anywhere we wanted, and nobody knew who we were, and that was awesome, too. Man, you're saying things that are so spot on because, I, you know, like, like we said before this all started, I had mentioned that people had said, you, you might be a fifth-day burden, and, and, the, and the reason why was because I was close. I was hanging out. I was going on the road with you guys. I went to Milwaukee. I remember going to Omaha, and we got snowed in, and there was, like, celebrity comedians and people that were there. And I remember at one point you guys are off doing your thing, and you, you're totally right. I watched it, and that's why I want to tell this story. You guys totally did get mobbed by everybody around you, and people kept saying, are you in the band? And I think a couple of you guys were like, just tell them you're in the band. And I'm yeah. like, no, no. I, <laughs> yeah, like, just I don't tell want, them, dude. Just tell them. I'm in the band. I'm good. Let's go. And I was like, I, you know, I, I don't want to mess with my karma, but I do remember that you guys 100% were in that world. And people, when because I, I went to a lot of shows, people hung on everything you guys did. And the reason why they loved what you did, it's that whole quote of, you know, Charlie Parker, you know, what came out of his horn was his voice. What came from the stage was your voice. And your voice was unique because you guys switched instruments up. You guys were the most egalitarian group of guys going. No one was going to claim superiority because you guys were genuinely the World Series team. You were genuinely a team. That was the beauty of it. Well, like you remember uh, uh, North by Northwest up in, I think it's in Portland. When we went there, we ended up playing at this place. It was like a, a hamburger soda malt shop. And it was uh, had glass on three sides. Like literally four to six glass on three sides of the restaurant. And it all, it was kind of like the five points in New York where these buildings would come down and be skinny on one end. Yeah. That's where they had the stage at. And we got set up and I think there was a giant buzz about us. Everybody was talking about us and stuff. When we finally got set up to play the show, it was standing room only, this little tiny burger joint. People, everybody sat Indian style on the floor. Like they were all sitting there looking up at us. And I remember having a feeling at that point where I was like, my God, this is it. This is, these people get what we're doing. They're ready and eager to sit here and listen. And it was like, that's where... You know, the monkey met the cup. It was like, all right, this is like it's answering itself. It's what we were doing and wanted to It was being reached by people who wanted to hear what we were doing. And it's just like, hey, you know, they're taking seriously. And we were serious, too. I mean, you know, we looked around and we had a great time. But there was a side of us that we were like a sports team. We were going to F and win. You know, we were going to win. You know, like, we went into a place with five bands. We were going to be the best, period. And, you know, that was that was just that. It's weird how it can be both, you know. It really was. We had so much fun and we're so relaxed here. But we also knew that when we cranked through certain parts of our music, 
and we could just destroy the house. And that's what we would want to do. Bashing on the keys, smashing those guitars, and just making it all just come apart, you know? That moment up there in Portland with everybody sitting there calmly, silently, almost like they were in church or something. It is almost like a weird twinge, like pushed on a touch of worship that I really didn't like. But I knew it was just, uh, this is just the music. Not me or them or us. You know what I mean? It's like, this is us doing this thing. And, and the thing that's great about this is that a lot, all these stories that I'm hearing, I remember they were just conversations. It was like, so what's up? How did it go? These were parts of the conversation. But the one story that I heard that painted the most Norman Rockwell picture for me was when you guys were in Oklahoma and a lot of us came down, like friends that didn't, like Emmett came down, maybe Booze came down. There was a lot of people yes. that came down. There was a battle of the bands and Sixpence None the Richer, Lay Nash was there and you guys played and she got tears in her eyes and I always hear that song, Kiss Me, and I always yeah. talk about you guys. The minute that song comes on, I'm like, this woman loved these guys and it's what you're well, talking about in Portland. It, her her husband was in something called Pray for Rain, and they're one of my favorite bands too. Amazing, they're amazing. And he was behind her, hugging her, and she was crying. She started crying and watching us. And her husband is hugging her. It's like watching the Hallmark movie or something. And then finally, <laughs> yeah. afterwards, she's like, she came up and she's like, "You guys are the future of what's happening." She's, "You guys are bringing in what's coming soon." And she was so sweet and super nice, you know, just wonderful. She was super wonderful person. And the good thing what you're doing, Phil, and this just shows how good and, and, and how much of a veteran you are and your memory of the band, you're going through things that I would have already asked. But the one thing that I want to know from you is, is that you clearly came in as a veteran. And I, and I got to say that when I interviewed Jaeger, Jaeger was very – very highly complimentary of your mentorship of him. The way that you were and who you were was, was exalted when he came in, and he really admired you. And, and, and I keep saying that with you because there's a role that everybody played. As much as you guys, you know, tossed the instruments around, you were the veteran of the band. But as the veteran of the band, you guys all grew together. How did that happen? How did you see the band evolve from those early conversations with, with Dean and John, to what you guys ultimately became as a band when you were in Portland capturing an audience? I think one of the things that, and I don't know how conscious I was of doing it, I think one of the things that I do well is I can pull the best out of others. And that's something that I just not necessarily was like, now I'm going to have this goal of pulling the best out of others. I just, that's something that I would, I would push them and I would, you know, make sure that when they did hit something amazing that they understood that it was really that amazing and challenge them to be like, you know, dig, you know, find, you know, throw it out if it sucks and find something better. Um, and then just kind of guiding the whole thing. And I mean, I did a lot of stitching, you know what I mean? Like arranging, you know, everybody had ideas. And I think I helped with a lot of like some of the glue that kind of put things together. We were very eclectic too. I mean, you know, you think about all the different changes and stuff that we would go through, especially that first album with the, the Sky Kings record. There's a lot of, like, just directional changes that happen in the middle of stuff. And uh, I think that that was, like, kind of a goal, too. We liked the surprise. But as far as, like, me, you know, 
what I was doing was help them pull out what was already in there. You know what I mean? And making sure that they understood when it happened what it really was. That they, you know, you do have it. Yeah, you wrote something that it's as good as Paul McCartney. You did. Or, you know, something as good as uh, Jeff Lynn or as good as David Bowie. Or, you know, it's like you put something on there and it's like, it sounds like you too. It sounds, and it really did. And to have that understanding of what level you're really at and to be able to say, okay, this really is done or no, this really is not up to par and we need to either chuck it or work it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So, you know, as as we you kind of walked up that ladder um with with where the Daybirds were going, Dennis Rodriguez was a part of that path that led you to a different level. Talk to me a little bit about that era of Dennis. That was um that was a very interesting time. Um I don't know. I think there was a lot of uh maybe me fooling myself a little bit of what I thought might happen and just had a lot of, not false hope at all, but just like maybe ended up more like, not delusions of grandeur either, because we were that good, but just was hoping things would line up in a much easier and cleaner and quicker way than it ever did, and just thinking and automatically assuming that it was. Now, that drove the music, and I think it made up for a lot of great things that we worked on, you know? I mean, as far as, like, you know, him putting us in showcases and renting vans for us and to be able to record in Las Vegas and in uh, Montreal and in uh, Los Angeles and then where else? Oh, uh, Nashville, you know, that's stuff that I'll never forget. I mean, him doing that stuff, that's something that's marked in my mind. It's like, you know, with the Daybirds and all that, there was few times where I felt like I really was making it happen than then. You know, being in Montreal, riding the the train downtown to the studio, recording all day, and then going back and taking a nap at the hotel after, and then going walking up San Sulpice and watching all the, the – uh, the Parisians watch Bon Jovi and drink and shoot pool and do karaoke. It just, you know, it was really, I don't, you know, when, when else would that happen in your life? It really worked out like that. It just, he never put us as a priority. It was always this giant 24 karat gold carrot hanging right in front of our noses. And he just never turned around and paid enough attention to us, you know, he, he, you know, it was a pet project that he never sat in his lap, you know, like really just sat in his lap and made it flesh out. That's and interesting. So I don't know. I mean, I really was excited and he was excited for us and he, he was all for us, but he's like, he never really, I don't think lined it up the way he should have to make it line up for us. So in, instead of getting to that, like, JFK moment of where you were at when the phone call happened, it almost sounds like what you're saying is it was an inevitability. If he would have gone a different percentage to what you guys were doing and taken it in a different, like, seriousness, you wouldn't have even had to have gotten to that phone call. It would have materialized one way or another. I, yeah. yeah, I think so. And I kind of was, you know, look, I've been swinging at the fences since 1990, and now it's 2004. 
You know what I'm saying? And so maybe I wasn't at the place where I still was ready to just keep beating down the dressers because it's like I knew that what was coming was going to be ten times more of what we were already doing. And to one point, that's really good. But then it's like there's stuff that I regret. You know, everybody's got regrets. You know, stupid crap that I did and said that I didn't mean and laying blame for, you know, on other things other than myself, which I should have blamed myself. You know, there were certain things of why it all kind of split apart. And I was glad that the Daybirds kept going. And I was hoping that they was going to do great. You know, they went on for another year or whatever. And I was hoping that they would just be like, catch on fire. And, you know, I know they did what they did and everything went pretty good. And so I don't know what happened. I wasn't involved at the end of that part of it. But I think in a way, I kind of beat myself up a little bit. And I have a sorry for them because I feel like I kind of let them down because I kind of just sort of pulled back a little bit. You know what I mean? Well, you know, the one thing I will tell you, too, that was interesting, it's like all of you guys up to this point, the only person I haven't spoken with is Dean, is that all of you are saying very revelatory things that are very key to this. And one thing that John Evans said that was so key to this is these suits were never going to get you guys. These guys that were in high rises, that were writing the checks, and it's kind of that sad song of the music industry, the difference between the creatives and the squares. At the end of the day, what you guys were doing and who you guys were, there was no way that anybody was going to be able to get it. I think that's what... That's why I want to make sure that anybody that wonders about the Daybirds will never have to wonder again because you guys are going to tell this story. And what you guys did was exactly what you said earlier on. You guys were pre the the paparazzi, but you live this dream. And you guys have these these memories and this vessel that you lived it. You, you, you don't have well, to say, did I live it? You lived it. I wish we had the, I wish every moment would have been on tape somewhere and we could create a reality show of what happened because it's as good as anything that anybody ever made up. You know, it really went down the path. It was like an old story. And then also, Joe, as an aside, I'd like to say Evans is a bad mofo, famous FM. They're all bad mofos. He's just was right on top of it and knew what was going on. I'm so grateful he let us record there and everything. He just, I just, I love that dude. He's freaking awesome. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's the key to all of this is that the sense that I've, I've gotten out of all of this and the sense that I always got from you guys is that at the end of the day, we all have to, we have directions that we have to move in. But you guys all did it for the right reasons. You guys were all tight. You guys were all friends. You guys were all doing this for the – that's the thing. You guys were all doing this for the right reasons. There was no one in this at any point that was doing it for any other reason other than but for what you were doing. It was for right. friendship and it was be, for the love of music. To make the best songs we could make, to make the best songs. Period. And to get out and to do them live and have fun, just living the sweat out of your body, being the music, you know? Absolutely, without a doubt. So, so let me ask you this. And – you know, you guys with Dennis got the chance to go to Vegas. You guys went to L.A. You guys went to Montreal. These were very momentous things. What did those trips mean? And I heard about them by osmosis, but those had to be huge growth periods 
for you guys, not only as a band, but just as humans? Well, I think that's tough because part of it, I mean, I don't know how much growth it was musically other than us just working, but just as our friendship and spending time together and doing all this stuff together, that was part of it too. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I, I was like going through this and it's like, I can't believe somebody's paying for this. You know what I'm saying? Because it's so much fun. Huh. It's exactly what we want to do. And when, you know, you know, I remember times of being Sweetwood or being Jaeger or being Dean or look at each other and just be like, what the hell, man? Is this happening? You know what I mean? Like we were just like blown away by it, you know? Super cool, you know? And yeah, just that, that those times, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, we had to leave stuff behind here, make sure we were organized through the whole thing, make sure we kept our chops and, uh, you know, equipment running and, you know, there's a lot of other little things going on, all that stuff at the same time. People that he wanted us to meet, this, that, and the other and all, you know, it was like, there's just, I'm just so grateful I could be a part of it, you know? It was super fun and I didn't know what was going to become of it. I was hoping more than what did and sooner, but just even doing what we did, I'm just was like blown away by it and, you know, the one thing that's very key about what we're doing right now is is that we're talking about something that happened decades ago. And, yeah. you know, whenever we think about our younger years, and sometimes I'll think about our 20s, like when we were all sitting around in those coffee shops and we were talking about our lives and doing our things, we all had our problems, but I don't remember them. Like I don't really like think, well, that was one thing that was really big that was going on. I mean, we all had girl things. We all had family things. We all had the things that go into just growing pains. But right. we don't really think about that. So I guess my thing now is is that when you sit back in the easy chair and you think about your life and the legacy of the Daybirds, what comes to mind? What's, what's like the guttural, like visceral thing that comes in that says, damn, that was it. That was the band. That was, that was our life. I say it was like, knowing knowing a good dream ahead of time and then actually living it out. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, dude. That's so with well the, said. With a six-shooter on your side and you're just shooting from the hip, you know, putting that together and deciding to work and then starting our rehearsals and coming together and working on it and figuring out this music as we went, it's like we knew what we had. We knew as we built it and as we made these songs what we had. And then it became a deal with, we've got to get this out so we can put it on a record, put it in a hall, and play live. I just think about the four of us and just being willing to do it and then having the skills to do it, having the mindset and the diplomacy and the work ethic and all that to just keep it all in line and do what we did and get as much as we did get, you know, done, done. I mean, yeah. I still think that if the right if the right person got a hold of Turnstile or you rock, I think that they, you know, they'd find something in it that is as good as anything out there. And I know that. And that's something I look at that and I'm like, you know, me and John and and John and Dean, we made that happen. And it makes me laugh, you know, like laugh not as funny, but laugh like with, oh, man, we did it. We did do it. 
you know? Yeah. For real. For sure. Yeah, you did. You 100% did. And, you know, I guess my my final question or one of my final – well, i got a couple more questions. And what, one of them That's is, is the one thing time. that I – yeah, yeah. Well, the one thing that I did think about that, that was a part of this that I've kind of posed it to everybody from Dennis on down to the band members is that to me, it seems as though you guys were on this cusp of like promoting yourself. You were making all of this music physically as well as in the studio. You were promoting it, doing all this, but you guys were right before that wave before we got into this digital revolution that we're in right now with all right. the social media, and all the ways that you can promote. Do you ever think that things could have probably transpired in a different way if there would have been a different era you would have been in? I mean, and I think I'm always reminded that there's a lot of things that go into things working the right way. But I think right. that because you guys were before things, you could really take the destiny in your own hands. Do you ever think about that? It's a tough call, Joe, because it also points to a time to where all are revealed. And we're not the only band that was out there doing it. And so it's like, hit that revolution. Yeah, your stuff is out there. But so is 25, 50 other bands that were working as hard as you're working that's out there. Yeah. And so I think it's sort of, yeah, the, the media and the technology could have taken it to a certain point. I, yeah, I think it's very possible. But I also think, too, it might just be just as much of a luck of the draw as it was for us, just because of the fact that it really is who who hears it. And it's like things today with the digital technology, things are so much more of a flash in the pan than they used to be. You know, something to be amazing, and then it's gone. And it's just nobody will give it a second thought because there's such a glut of technology, there's a glut of music. Everybody's a songwriter. Everybody's putting stuff out. Everybody's a photographer. You know, and it's just like, how can you get through all the material? You just want to take a nap. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, there's no way to get through all the new bands. <laughs> I put on, uh, I was on YouTube, and I put on alternative 90s bands, uh, unheard alternative, and there was like 500 videos and every song that came on was a band I never heard of. It was amazing. Yeah. Over and over and over and over. Yeah. You know? It's almost like a good football team or a good baseball team. It's like you know how to work the rules and you just put it together right and then, you know, you even have battles where you fight against each other, but it's music instead of uh, yards or points, you know? Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's true. Totally true. So when you think about, you know, the one thing that's always been the backbone of what we consider the Daybird's legacy, and this whole idea was started by the great Michael Norman Booz, who just simply texted me Daybird's, and I thought, you know what? I'd thought about it for a while, and then I finally was like, you know what? It's time. And I think about all of you guys and how tight you guys were and, 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 and still are. And is there anything that you see that, that, that's left unsaid? Anything that could be said or do we have a book that's the, where it should be? It's at the right page. Uh, I think there's some things that I said that I wish I didn't. I uh, wish I could take back. And if anybody else wants to name them, I'm just going to leave it unsaid because I don't want to remind them. 
not that I was a terrible person or nothing. I just think I was a stupid kid, and I wasn't thinking through everything, and I should have held my tongue and respected more and people a little more. I will say also, I think the Daybirds is as good as any band I was ever in. It's as good as Dig Zeus. Uh, I think in a way it was better for me because I got to be more, more involved. I wasn't just singing. You know, it was much more a part of me because I think I kind of helped kind of like hurt it into its beginning. And then, you know, it went from like hurting to guiding to teaching to even, you know, uh, instructing, consulting. Because as they got better, I just kind of backed up and, let, you know, they got better and better. And we all helped each other. Just that, I just think that there's some things I wish I hadn't have said. If any, you know, if I made any of them mad, I'd say I'm sorry, and I wish I could go back to that time and erase what I said. Other than that, not I mean, nothing specific comes to mind. So let's say in a couple of weeks from now, you get a random phone call during the middle of the day, and you get somebody that is a promoter, and they say, we're going to do a reunion show. We're yeah. going to get the Daybirds back on stage. What do you say to that? I'd say up until about two or three months ago, I wouldn't even be in a position to make it happen. I think now I could, and I'd say yes. But Beautiful. it's something that, you know, everybody's got to be on the same page. I think we've had plenty of time apart to deal with, you know, whatever might have been built up, and I think it would be fun. I think we'd have a lot of fun. I agree. Silly, let me tell you something right now as we kind of conclude this. I just want to let you know right now, you know, I've been doing the interview scene for a long, long time with a lot of musicians. This was one of those Lou Donaldson, Sonny Rollins kind of interviews. You, you, you always remind me of kind of the Moses of this band, and it's something that Jaeger even talked about. There was a, there was a very you're – the, you're the wise one with the, in, in Cloud City with the long beard <laughs> – and the big long stick walking up the mountain and everybody's fall. You you just you 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 encapsulated so much. You you eclipsed a lot of questions that I was going to ask and got right to it in such a profound way, dude. I I hope I I hope you feel good about this. But I I feel like you did just unbelievably. It was brilliant, dude. I appreciate you opening up. Well, I'm glad to do it. Uh, it's something that if if the other guys are as proud of it as I am, they sure as hell should be. A hundred percent, and I feel that. I feel, I feel almost the giddiness, and I think I, what I've heard from a lot of the guys is that there's been a revisit of just a lot of things, a lot of memories, a lot of music. I don't know if you could set it up, Joe, but I would a time where all four of us got together and you just sit on video and just dude. crack just for about two hours and see what you get. But yeah, dude, Phil, this was this was wonderful, man. See you, Philly. Later on, Joe. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, brought to you by the 110-250 Audio Studio, where we give you a fresh and comprehensive insight into the finest musicians in the world. Thanks to Phil for imparting the wisdom and refreshments. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on both iTunes and Spotify. Swing by Neon Jazz at YouTube.com, and for all things relatable or forgotten, you can go to JoeDomino.com. Until next time, enjoy the music out there. Okay. What's this? A day bird? A yard bird? Who's the bird? Where is he?